This episode is sponsored by a donor to Global Wellness Institute, or GWI. GWI is a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a mission to empower wellness worldwide by educating the public and private sectors about preventative health and wellness. GWI's research, programs, and initiatives have been instrumental in the growth of the $4.5 trillion U.S. dollar wellness economy and in uniting the health and wellness industries. Visit globalwellnessinstitute.org. On this episode, we have Carla Morales-Lee. Carla's father hails from Nicaragua and was the first Nicaraguan to study at Oxford in the U.K. Carla herself was born in the U.K. where she also grew up. She attended boarding school starting as a young teen when her parents migrated to South Africa. She understood her innate passion for understanding the motivation of people and launched a career in marketing and branding working for a number of leading agencies. She eventually founded her own brand agency called Hunter and Farmer. In addition to now consulting, she actively manages two organizations she brought to fruition recently called New Breed Services, which addresses the changing nature of work and career building, and Warrior Women Network, a support and networking platform for women driven by making an impact in the world. Carla, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. No, this is a a real treat. I've been looking forward to this for some time. Um... I really like to start from the very beginning. And so I, you shared with me in a text exchange uh, on LinkedIn that uh, your family is originally from Nicaragua? Yeah. And is that uh, where you were born? No. So my biggest kind of uh, regret, I suppose, is that I don't speak Spanish. So regularly, oh, okay. I'll often meet people who get very animated when they see the surname Morales and they say, oh, you, you know, you speak Spanish. And I say, no, I don't. Um, <laughs> because I was brought up in the UK and my dad uh, went to Oxford University over here and then mm. met my mom and kind of we stayed over here and they never spoke Spanish to me so it's all mm. on them. <laughs> gotcha yeah no understandable um, and uh, which college was your father associated with? Boston, I think it was. Okay yeah. yeah. He was actually the first Nicaraguan to go to Oxford University and did economics there. Um, wow. Yeah, the backstory there is that um, there was a civil war going on at the time when he left and our family was quite involved in that. So, um, yeah, it made sense to leave the country. Sure, sure. And this was the overthrow of the Somoza dictatorship. Yeah, Yeah. my granddad, which... um, it's a very strange story for me, but because I grew up being told the sort of legacy of my life, having not been living in Nicaragua, but the, the story, or uh, the truth, I suppose, is that my granddad was the general of the Nicaraguan army during that civil war. Wow. Um, and uh, so was very much kind of involved in all of that, as you can imagine. Um, and they, yeah, it's just a very, very sort of strange growing up. I mean, my, my basic, my journey has taken me to a place where I've described as quite a vulnerable leader now. And so I really encourage people to tell their full story in their work. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think lately this story has become quite prevalent. Um, and it's because uh, in part that um, my father he went on a journey of kind of leaving Nicaragua during a very turbulent time and working his way up from 
a position of kind of quite lowly in Barclays to the very top, nice. being made redundant in his 50s, getting divorced and eventually dying from being an alcoholic. So, Oh, goodness. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a very sad story, but it's also, unfortunately, a story of the downside of sometimes believing that corporate life will hold you dear and close um, up until the pension. I think that story is eroding and um, we're moving to a new world of work, which has emerged a new worker, which is what I call the new breed. And uh, we just picked, picked up on this previous to starting this interview, which was to say you yourself have many different job titles, you know, many different experiences. And we just don't fit that neatly anymore into these ladder careers we have. Um, and what that means, the plus side of that is it means we're brilliant problem solvers. It means we're non-linear thinkers. It means we're interconnected in completely complex different ways. Um, but the downside of that is that the classic corporate system doesn't hire for the new breed. And so some of that thinking isn't necessarily making it into the places that have the most impact for solving societal and environmental problems. True. So uh, it's kind of, that's the story that underpins all of that, which is it may seem safer, but actually my favorite quote from Anonymous is, you're killing yourself for a job that would replace you in a week. And that was that's my right. experience. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. There certainly is a mismatch because the corporate titans, as it were, are still in this old school mentality of expecting careerist loyalty, whereas they don't offer that in return anymore. And so there, there is no parachute or safety net that most people of uh, the millennial generation and even several of us uh, in Gen X um, feel. And um, so, yeah, that's, it's, a, it's a challenging time. Um, just to go back a little bit, um, you have siblings, Carl? Yeah, for a brother, yeah. Younger, older? Um, he's younger, he lives in Malta. He runs a, a fish farm out in Malta. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, which part of the UK did you grow up in? So I grew up um, originally in Kent and then when I was 13 my parents moved to South um, South Africa because my dad was setting up Barclays out in South Africa okay. and I went to a boarding school in the UK which actually the typical story of boarding school is kind of one of remorse and, and rejection but for a 13 year old girl who at that point living with her parents I felt a bit like I kind of won the lottery like so hang on a second <laughs> I get to leave my parents and hang out with loads of people of my own age all the time. It wasn't the same story for my nine-year-old brother and it wouldn't be the story that I would want for my children. Right. But again, I think the heritage linear story is really interesting because my dad's parents went to boarding school, he went to boarding school. And I right. think that just sometimes we fall into those patterns just because that's how we grew up in there. Yeah, the expectation. Now, um, is your mom also of Nicaraguan descent? No, so she's British, um, okay. but she did move to Nicaragua for six years when she met my dad, and she came from a very sheltered upbringing, mm. um, and she was suddenly emerged in this quite um, blue-blooded lifestyle, I suppose. My dad tells or told this incredible story about how they used to go to Easter egg hunts with the Kennedys at the White House, which is, again, a very extreme story to hear when you've never met these people and you've never seen that life. But 
um, yeah, she was um, submerged into that life. And I think within six years, I had quite a transformational experience out there. Got it. Have you spent much time visiting Nicaragua? I visited once since he passed away with my brother for three weeks. And it was amazing. I wish it had been more part of my childhood. Luckily, I've still got family there. So I'm reconnecting and finding that place in in my life. And hopefully, you know, if we can ever travel again, and and if it even makes sense to the climate now, hopefully we can find a place for it to be part of our children's life as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, Carla, in another podcast interview you did, you talked about um, the, the elements that we know about ourselves when we're really young. Do you recall yeah. that? I wonder if you could share that uh, again here today. Yeah, it's um, it's been, I've had various forms of therapy in my life. Um, and the latest one isn't therapy at all, which is transformational coaching, which I'm sure a lot of executive leaders have been through at some point. But the, the idea behind transformational coaching is that really you experience some kind of breakthrough that takes you from one place, typically in your career, but could be your relationship, and takes you to another place. And um, one of the insights from that coaching was realizing that I'd been on a journey to constantly find my purpose and find what I was good at, um, and never really been somebody. My husband's an artist; he's doing okay. very well at it. Yeah. And I always admired somebody who would kind of, from a very young age, was like, this is my talent. I will do this regardless. And I've never really been like that. Again, going back to the new breed, I, I followed interests and passions and, they, and they, you know, they were quite diverse. And so it was an interesting exercise for somebody who holds that narrative of like, I don't have one talent or one gift to say, well, actually, is that true? Because if we go back to our early years, is there something that we can... Um, hatch onto and for me it turns out that what I have held as my greatest weakness which is being too much too emotional too open often in business settings described as brutally honest mm. it's actually my gift is that I speak very openly I think partly it's because I'm half Latin American right. um, when I was at school I remember one of the teachers telling me you know, you don't have to hug everyone and tell them that you love them. <laughs> um, so I think that comes with that, that background. But the gift for me is I'm very comfortable with holding space for people to have conversations that they wouldn't normally have with other people. So these days I run a network called the Warrior Women Network, which is for women who are pioneering new ways to solve big problems in the world. And I create spaces where they can share things that, they maybe wouldn't share with their partner or in corporate settings um, and feel solidarity from other people. So I will say to people, what is the thing that you knew that you had from a young age? And I think the secondary point of that is that thing might actually be something that you hold as a weakness in your life. Um, and for some people that's open an interesting conversation. I mean, I'd love to reflect that back to you right now. I'm not sure how comfortable you'd be with answering that question. Uh, it's actually, um, it's a curiosity about other cultures and why the uniqueness there and then, and then bridging the gap and not feeling any problem or discord. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I actually was born in Germany to parents of Indian origin and we migrated to the States when I was young. And so my parents, typical of, of immigrant families, they try very much to adhere to 
the the home country way of doing things because it's all they've ever known. So we're inside, you know, they're trying to raise us in this very traditional Hindu way. And um, I'm just very curious about Christmas, Christianity, it's Christmas tree here. And then, you know, like a menorah, like, oh, that's cool. What's that about? And so being at everyone else's house during those celebrations and my parents saying, you know, what are you doing? You're like betraying your own culture. I never saw it that way. It was just this curiosity and understanding. So there was a bit of a resonance when, when I heard you describe that and when I'm hearing you describe this now, this sort of being an empath and having some vulnerability, like that was, you know, that curiosity was always um, ran high in me and I got a lot of criticism for it and needing to focus and needing to stick with my tradition. And um, I, I've just, um, raged against that most of my life and the times that I've been happiest Carla are when I've just sought my own path the times when I've been miserable is when I've kind of buckled under the pressure and succumbed to to the weight of that tradition um, so it's, it's been fascinating but one thing that's been great we used to go to India as when I was a child often but now going as an adult and kind of discovering it for myself and what my cultural backdrop means to me has been so liberating because I can see the beauty, the essence, and I don't see it as this sort of didactic um, being under the thumb of this weight of tradition. Um, so that has been a real blessing. But thank you for throwing it back to me. I appreciate well, that invitation. I, I think that's a really poignant point there, which is, there's kind of a gift when it's first, and I say gift because I think gift is broader than a talent, you know, right. and, and I think there's a gift that's identified and then it's understood by other people because right. a three, four, five, you know, even eight, 10 year olds can't necessarily frame that within like what the value of that is. So the first time you understand your gift is through often through a parent who will have an opinion to that. And, and then that whole point about me saying going back and discovering yourself is maybe like that second awakening of like re-earthing that. So actually, how does that show up for me and how do I feel differently about that now? And um, it's, yeah, that, that's, that's a really interesting way to think about it and to bring that into the conversation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Carla, other than hugging your peers and being scolded for that, uh, what else was boarding school like for you? I, and I appreciate the comment you made earlier about it being like you struck the lottery. You could... God, I mean, I kind of, uh, there's an interesting, so my husband was fostered when he was three. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I kind of think that boarding school and this, I mean, I'm saying this, this, this might be quite triggering for people. So if you're listening right now and you've been to boarding school and you're not okay with it, you might not want to continue this, this listening to this, but it's <laughs> a trigger warning on this, but I feel like boarding school can be a bit like adoption for rich people. Mm. Uh, it shocks me that a lot of the kind of premier prestige boarding schools, which I was fortunate to go to, and I do feel fortunate to go to them, um, that they can start from sort of three years old. Like that is shocking to me. Um, and I think it says something very disturbing about a parent that commit a disconnection that said I really believe that most people making that decision would do it from a place of believing that that is the right thing for their child I've also got small children I 
I know how challenging that is. Um, if you add to that other elements, which might be finding parenting very difficult, having a challenging relationship, um, being in an extremely high-flying job, which means you're all around the world, cultural in implications around, well, actually, I think a British education is better. There's so many layers that you can't just, you can't just say that, that this ch child isn't loved. But I also think you can't throw that out of the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think going back to my various therapy types, there was an interesting conversation when one of my previous therapists said that it's impossible not to feel rejected having gone to boarding school. And I thought that was a really poignant comment because even if you are okay with it, when I really thought about it, I did feel rejected from doing that. Yeah. It was something yeah. I was choosing my children. So, I think it's a very actually under talked about complex area, especially given many of the people who are running our country, especially in the UK, have all been through a formal boarding school education. Mm -hmm. So we have to ask, well, what does that say about them psychologically and what does that mean for their decision making? Yeah, absolutely. No, I completely agree with that. Um, at some point, you began gravitating towards this passion for uh, branding, marketing. I, and I wonder if there was some element of uh, connecting with people and, you know, uh, those who are clever at it, which you clearly are, um, can take a product or a concept and, and build connection with people. And that's how, you know, brand loyalty is, comes about. Um, and so I wondered if your experience, personal experiences made you crave that. Is it uh, some truth there maybe? Um, I'm, Gosh, this, this, this might enter into kind of conspiracy theory, um, <laughs> which I know there's a big kind of um, appetite for at the moment globally. But I am really fascinated by the ability of people to persuade other people of an idea mm. and the academic thinking behind that. Um, and the way that that has showed up more prevalently in commercial, the commercial world is marketing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was really, and also when I studied marketing, which was kind of early 2000s, there was a lot of glamour around marketing. Like it was like a dream for most people to work at Cadbury's, Unilever, Procter and Gamble. Like those were like, the McKinsey's and the Deloitte's of yesteryear. Like it was like to get on a graduate scheme in marketing for them was like really a big deal. So I think I was kind of glamored a little bit by what I perceived was the creative side of business. Um, 10 years on, I became quite successful. I was speaking globally on how to build a brand um, that stood out in a sea of sameness I used to talk about. And I developed a methodology that worked really well at helping creative businesses, especially agencies to do that. And I just kind of had a moment where almost flipping back to what I've just said about being able to convince people of ideas, I realized I'd become really well known at good in something I didn't care about. <laughs> um, and so I kind of played my own theory without really meaning to, which is if you can own an idea in people's minds, if you can you know, raise your awareness, if you can get engagement, if you can create an audience, you can make people believe that you are an expert in something and you can get hired for it. And 
So I think I had a moment where I thought, this is a really important skill set, and do I want to use that for good? Um, which I guess some people, you know, it's not an uncommon thing. And it was a fantastic experience. Like at the height of my career, I was working for a company that was designing the Virgin Galactic spaceship. Right. And, it was know, Seymour Powell. Yeah, Seymour Powell, which was like yeah. a fantastic, I mean, I always say, I kind of have these, I guess like saying that the first one is like, what is the gift you've had since you're a child? And I used to talk about everyone has like a career transfer, like a, um, uh, transformational like career, you know, like something that they're like, that made me, that was the moment. And like, for me, that company, they designed the Baby G watch, the cordless kettle. Um, my first day there, they had a prototyping studio downstairs and they were designing like a Texan billionaires um, helicopter and really, <laughs> a lot of product design for me is like absolutely fascinating it's like everything that we use and touch is designed by somebody so and I worked for some founders who um, really knew the power of having a vision for what you wanted to do and they, they would talk about how there were millions of companies in the world that could design your product but there was only a, their philosophy that they held was only there so it was a really properly a really good schooling in branding to be honest um and it led me to develop my own consultancy but yeah so i i have sort of developed quite a hateful relationship towards marketing to be honest and i think we're seeing those tactics played out a lot in politics um so yeah <laughs> my, brother, my brother's always saying to me though come to Malta and do marketing, you'll make a killing because like where he lives, everything just says, here's an orange, buy an orange. <laughs> um, <laughs> so maybe I'd probably be a lot more richer if I'd stayed in it, to be honest. But you know, you can't look back at your decision. You have to look forward. Gotcha. And it was that uh, when you started your own, that was a uh, hunter and farmer? Yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, tell us about the steps leading to that. Cause I know there was, um, you were at Williams Murray Ham for a bit. And then yeah. uh, I love this name, Aphrodite Crossa. Aphrodite Crossa, yeah. Aphrodite. Well, I mean, so essentially I moved from, I mean, it's, it's not the, the line between where I am now and back then is, I guess, like knowing how to grow businesses is probably yeah. the, the golden thread that runs through it all. But I developed this six week process, which was about how could you develop a new business plan which was about getting customers to come to you rather than you come to them because mm. as soon as you approach somebody and say can i work with you you're immediately the power the power balance is off i mean you'll know this from the startup world like if you approach an investor and say hey do you want to invest in my company opposed to them approaching you like the valuation is probably like half of what they'll give you right exactly um, yeah. so again thinking about the kind of the background psychology of these things and understanding how selling and buying works is something that i've always been really good at so i would take that i would understand from speaking to the directors and looking at the market what made them different through a strategic process and then i would come back with a plan for like what are some of the tactics you're going to do and the messaging that are going to attract the right business to you. Um, and it was a real range of customers like Aphrodite Crasso is amazing. She designs interiors for like Heston Blumenthal and like Gordon mm. Ramsay. And she was an interior designer designing restaurants. And the brief from her was like, we're really great if you put us in a lineup. 
we're not that different. And it's so similar if you're, if you're you know, an ed tech app, or if you're um, a detergent, like they're exactly, a lot of the time doing a lot of the same things. The difference is, is brand. And um, for them, it was looking at their portfolio and just saying, actually for each one of these examples, like when you designed Heston Blumenthal's restaurant, it was the first airport restaurant for, for Heathrow. Well, when you designed Itsu, the Japanese restaurant, it was the first quick service retail. So actually um, what you're doing is kind of standing all these businesses out and then just selling that to, to hospitality clients and saying like, you know, we can help you to stand out amongst, uh, about, amongst other ones. And then that being a value add, you know, and being like, oh, actually, don't just want an interior. We want to be the first of this, the first of that. And then she could, you know, she was doubling her prices and, and, and getting million pound contracts rather than like 50,000 pound contracts. So, <laughs> um, and I did that for like data businesses, media businesses, all kinds of businesses. And like I said, you know, spoke a lot about that. Um, globally yeah i haven't spoken about that for a while actually it's interesting it's funny how you move past your different stages right right well great i appreciate your um uh, recapturing that and so um what was the point where you knew i've got to do this on my own create my own agency which still you continue to operate hunter and farmer and tell us about the inspiration behind the name yeah, I mean, it's so, it's quite in the past now, but like hunter and farmer is just when you talk about sale, you know, sales, there's always the, the understanding that there's a hunter, which is somebody who goes out and finds clients. And there's a hunter, a, a farmer, which is like a kind of client service person who mm. will keep accounts and then grow them. And the, the truth of new business is that you need both of those at all times because it's much more cost effective to keep your current clients than it is to get new ones. Right. At the same time, if you just stay with your current clients, suddenly some of them could leave and then you need to make sure. And if you're trying to fill your pipeline at the very last minute, then you won't be in a position that when you need them, they'll be there. So yeah. the whole thing is hunting and farming at the same time. Nice. Oh, and Aphrodite was one of my clients as of like uh, yeah. clients that I that I worked with over six years. Gotcha. gotcha. All right. Um, and so, talk, walk us through the transition from there to uh, to New Breed, and then yeah. what I really want to focus on is uh, Warrior Women Network. After that, yeah. So I'll tell you the true story because I think the Perfect. true story is way more interesting and is the vulnerable story that is probably more powerful for people because I. So the and it's what led to Royal Women, which was telling this story. So what happened with Newbreed was, um, from a personal point of view, my husband's mother unfortunately passed away. She was elderly, and so we did get some inheritance money. And we're both quite risk takers. We've always taken big risks, and um, we kind of sat down and had a moment. Where we were like, right, we could extend the house. You know, we could do X, Y, and Z. Like but, or we could take a bit of a punt on ourselves. So he left what full-time, he was a creative director and he left work and we were in a privileged position at that point to make that decision and um, decided to become a full-time artist, which, you know, he's really well at. And I had a similar thought, which was, I had this idea that global corporations would hire management consultancies or agencies to help them to frame like what problem they were trying to solve. So 
I don't know, say if they're um, a, beauty, a beauty business and they're saying, actually, we know we sell beauty products, but we'd like to do more good for the world. So they'd have like, uh, they'd have a strategy that maybe they wanted to be a brand for good, for example, but in terms of what they could do, they didn't know what they could do, but they needed some exploration. And what agencies and management consultancies did was that they took a view that they would research the market or do desk research and speak to people. And I thought there was an opportunity to actually find people who were already doing the work and connect them to organizations. And I came up with this idea of a herd to run with, which was that senior clients are, um, okay, if they're doing a huge global reorganization, of course, they'll still work with Accenture. If they're doing a global campaign for Diageo, but when it came to actually more of the innovation work, it was like, what if we just became a herd to run with who works alongside senior clients, took a brief, and then go and found people who are already on, doing entrepreneurs in the startup field who are already innovating um, or change-making and created the forums to bring them together with the clients to think together, essentially. So the client brings all the knowledge about the market and the new breed bring all of the insight about what's happening and what's worked and what hasn't to kind of hack through that. And we, the new breed are designing the, um, convening the space to then identify possible ways to solve that problem. Um, so we're taking it upstream to all of the possible thinking opposed to starting from a place of, oh, well, we're a management consultancy, we know, we're an agency, we know, we're the client, we know. So that they can get to places that are more differentiated, more high value, creating new revenue streams. Um, so that was and still is quite a groundbreaking idea that's at the early stages. We have worked with some customers for it, but it's still um, gaining momentum. And what happened was during that journey was that I had in my mind that it would be within three years, it would be off the ground and really successful because I thought the entrepreneurial journey was you create a startup within the first year, this happens within the second year, this happens within the third year, it happens. And everything you read online is like, this is what's going to happen here. This is what's going to happen there. This is when you get to see that, you know, series A, this is when you do this, this is when you do so-and-so. And I, after about a year, I was like, this is, I've got to build a team. I've got to, I've got to do all these things and it's just me and and I was looking at the bank account and I'm like this money suddenly doesn't feel like the money that was like let's see what happens suddenly feels like this is going on stuff that like I hadn't need like lawyers and all sorts of things yeah. Yeah. um and and then I would get projects that took two years to do and the client would be like we've got this much money and I'd be like but that's so much smaller than what I was expecting and so all this stuff was going on and basically now, I mean, I have an incredible team around because during those three years, I kept meeting like really incredible people to connect to clients, but it takes a long time to develop that network to, to even bring into those projects. So there was a lot that I should have probably thought about before, but I probably would have never have done it if I thought about it. <laughs> but the good side about it was, you know, it started to gain traction. We've got some really interesting projects with like Sony Music and like the Wellcome Trust and um, various other organizations. But the bad side about it was I was kind of breaking down behind closed doors and I was carrying a lot of shame at home. Like I felt like I'd let down his dead parents. I was letting down my partner oh, wow. and, and I was losing a lot of confidence and I didn't really know where to ask for help. So there was one distinct meeting when I was with a really quite high powered woman 
and she was about to pay for lunch and I was about to sort of offer for half and I realized I didn't really know if I could afford to pay for it mm. and I ended up saying something almost without thinking about it like oh god you know I'm so sick of not being able to pay for lunches and it started a conversation where she ended up opening up to me and saying that um, she'd run a number of big startups and she told me about when she was running her second startup how she would get um but uh, uh you know knocks on the door from bailiffs and letters coming through the door and like and she basically told me this true story and i thought i needed that true story more than i needed a connection like i needed stories that helped me to like keep going and there just wasn't that story out there and i like actually finding you know someone who can connect you to an investor finding a potential client you know it's not it's difficult but it's possible but finding someone who'll sit you down and say listen it's not a three-year journey it's a 20-year journey some of the ideas i had 20 years ago aren't happening now like that's the stuff that makes you go okay this is normal i can frame this in reality like and so the what kept telling I keep meeting people and I just think I might just tell them exactly where I'm at like mm-hmm. these are the customers in the pipeline this is how long it's taking I don't know if this is what does even validated mean there was so much terminology that I was like what even is a validated idea um, and that yeah so new breed is is still going but on the sideline what has emerged is a community that I've grown called the warrior women community which is women working in everything from tax injustice, human trafficking, climate change, global peacemaking, um, working for NASA, working within global corporations at high change making levels, but also project bases, outsiders, consultants. Well, and our mutual friend, Anima Kosai, working on whistleblowing. Global whistleblowing and Speak Up Academy around harassment at work. And created a space where we do peer-to-peer kind of mentoring um, for women to talk about what I say is creating a space for us to put on our own oxygen mask first. Because when a warrior woman quits, it's not just a tragedy for her and her family and the risks they've taken. It's actually a tragedy for like maybe the thousands or millions of people that their projects seek to help. So I think it's different from other kind of empowerment or confidence building workshops because the ultimate aim is to mobilize more social and environmental impact. And that's very much where new breeders as well. So we've pivoted a bit from being like any consulting to saying, actually, if you're an organization saying we need to do more good, we've got a global network of sustainability, change making, environmental activist people who can say well let's accelerate that like let's get around the table and the great side about that is corporations are very unlikely to have that capability in-house they might have one sustainability leader or one csr person but they won't have that knowledge and it doesn't compete as much with agencies and management consultancies it's a completely different herd to run with so over time it's like coming into like a neat little space and i think in the future i do see a vision for like warrior as a as a male version for that as well but maybe in more of a kind of c-suite bringing people from across organizations together to just say do you know what when i'm at this level i'm expected to know everything like i find that with a lot of 
men that I speak with, they're expected to know when you get to a certain level, when you've got that C on your CV, you're not allowed to say, I don't know. And I think that's something that I experienced with my own dad as being his complete fall down. Mm. It's not being able to be vulnerable, not being able to ask for help and eventually him, you know, resulting to, to where he ended up. And I just want to support people, so a bit like a snakes and ladders. Like I want to help people when they're falling down the snake, I want to pick them up, but I also want to create ladders of opportunities into work and in collaboration and co-creation as well. And, and I guess that's just like a picture of what working life is now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I really love uh, you're walking us through all of that. That was uh, uh, really potent. Um, um, it's so true. Like I've gotten to the point, I've been partnering my firm. I've been C-suite executive and I'm a father as well. And in all of those roles, you are expected to kind of know. And uh, sometimes it's challenging to say, well, I know how we can find the answer. Yeah. <laughs> I, or I have a suspicion on how we can find the answer. Let's go figure this out, which is a lot easier to do in a home setting with your children than it is in a, in a corporate setting where, you know, ultimately decisions has to be made and it's, it's a, kind of the responsibilities on your shoulders uh, in order to make that happen. Um, another area that I, I really loved um, when you spoke about the vulnerability aspect of what everyone's going through. And that really is Carla, a big part of what my podcast is meant to be about. It's about life journey. It's about the nonlinear path. It's about all of those, those struggles of facing of adversity, the overcoming of obstacles. Because I think this is where we can get inspired, much like you were in that lunch meeting. So I'm, I'm glad that you had that experience and, and I'm glad you're advocating for, for more of that, that discussion. Um, you know, another aspect that I gleaned from an interview that you did when you talked about building this community is um, not thinking about just how pieces of a puzzle may fit together in terms of uh, making a connection or, or, or offering introductions, but um, do we actually like each other? Oh yeah, that's a great one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, thank you for like, you know, you never know who's actually reading your stuff. So it's <laughs> yeah, I mean, gosh, business partnerships. Wow, that's like a whole area in its own right, right? Yeah, um, a multiple season podcast. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and I love, by the way, that, you know, I think one of the things that attracts me to being on this podcast is that it is very rare for somebody to say, tell me about your family. Like, do you have a sibling? What's your background? Where did you go to school? And I think we kind of rush past that to a job title. Like, what are you doing now? What's your business doing? And it leaves us with like, an identity that is just work and it's just not the reality. So I, I really applaud you for bringing that into this podcast. I think that's brilliant. Um, so yeah, the business partner thing. So I'm on my, I've had two business partners and now I collaborate with people <laughs> and um, it's been brilliant. And the thing about finding people that you like, so in the whole business development background that I had, I've been really fascinated with networking and actually um, hot off the press, we're kind of working on a secret networking concept at the moment, nice. which is I ran, uh, I also set up the UK Agency Awards, which is on its kind of six years, sixth year and I, I exited, which was a bit of national events program. And I set up a national event thing called the Art of New Business. And 
it was all about, you know, how do we bring people together? And again, these events are very much around, we've got a theme, you know, AI, the AI conference or women in tech conference. And everyone there is like a robot turning up as a woman in tech or someone in, in, in AI. And we, we are in a container that is designed for us to meet based on, on these things. So, um, and what happens is that we kind of, try and fit with business problems like you know kind of jigsaw pieces walking around like you know i'm looking for a software developer or i'm looking for a cfo and it's just a bizarre way to 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 conduct human interaction to be honest and um i came across this really interesting company uh the the program they came up with is called brain dates um which was running at a conference called, I think it's called C2 Montreal, uh, which is a really entrepreneurial conference. And it was about um, setting, connecting people in a completely different way through these brain dates, basically, which is right. like understanding more about the person and connecting them with their brain. And it really led me into this idea about designing learning experiences, which is kind of the work that we're doing. Well, not kind of, it's definitely the work that we're doing with New Breed now and with Warrior Women in, in creating these co-creation and collaboration, you know, spaces or encouraging that. Um, and we did an event for the Wellcome Trust, which is called the Think Sprint, which basically everyone turns up and you don't say what you do or where you work. Um, and we create, used a game designer to create this game around the theme of what is truth in the 21st century. And um, we basically enable people to form connections without them knowing what they did. And what was when we did another one at Mother, the advertising agency, and, and what was really interesting about these new breed think sprints was at the end of the time that they'd interacted with each other, you would find people saying, wow, I'm so fascinated by you and, and who you are, what do you do? And you would see people circle back and they would find a way to connect with each other. So they would say, oh, I'm a software designer at Apple or um, you know, I'm a games designer at this kind of like computer company. And they found they want to work together and then they would find a way to work together, yeah. opposed yeah. from the opposite way. And I have seen that form incredible collaborations because what's happened is I've created this space with warrior women and people are coming forward and saying, like, I want to be a part of this, like I want to help you with this. And so I think that conferences have to be completely redesigned. Um, and and in a way, how we form partnerships and how we can do more in the world needs to be think from a much more human a human perspective, which is a lot of what I'm talking about with vulnerability, just humanness at work, you know, like it's not even about mental health, it's just humanness. Yeah, no, absolutely. Those yeah. things that uh, bring us together um, can go further uh, than seemingly aligned interests on paper. Yeah. Yeah, no, about the business partner thing they're like the first business partner i found on twitter because we were talking about the same thing and the second business partner i found because she filled a skills gap that i felt that i didn't have and that she brought more gravitas it's just not completely the wrong way yeah yeah do you have a business partner now you must have a number of them I do. I'm actually very proud to say that uh, the two businesses where I spend most of my time have female founders. 
Oh, brilliant. <laughs> and, and one of them came about. It's actually a, a dear friend from 20 years ago. Yeah. We both were working in private equity together in New York. And um, I didn't like anybody else in the firm except her. <laughs> and, uh, we, we stayed in touch. And um, over the years, just checking in, what are you working on? What's this is going on? And then she, she came to me with this idea. I thought, wow, let's go make this happen. And so, um, so, so yeah, it, uh, because, you know, also the part of it is I just, I knew and I understood her. So I knew, and I think she knew and understood me. So we kind of knew what our strengths, weaknesses were and how we could support and accommodate or be patient. Sometimes it's just a matter of being patient through certain issues and, and having 20 years of background and just helped a lot. And I, you know, there's women in the group right now who have, issues with their business partners and it's like a divorce like yes. yeah. and i think we enter into these partnerships quite lightly sometimes That's right. often from a place of panic and need like i see people forming partnerships quite quick around their raising investment they're like i need somebody who's good on paper but to untie that stuff afterwards is so so full-on you know um and i and so I think people need to be a lot more considered. And one of the people that I'm talking to about having a business relationship now, I guess you would call it, is like, we're basically dating each other. Like we've refused, you know, we're like having lots of lunches and spending yeah. lots of time together because it's better to work out that it doesn't work than enter it hopeful yeah. that it will. Oh, 100%. Um, and so, you know, I, I ran a private equity fund for a number of years, which I stopped when my son was diagnosed with a rare blood disease. Um, he's been through two bone, bone marrow transplants and he's cured now, but it was the clearest decision in my life, Carl. I just dropped the fund and focused on, on him. And I've since morphed that fund into um, um, like an angel, like a family office of so doing angel investing. So I, I'm being pitched continuously on um, entrepreneurs or with various business ideas. And the areas that I love to focus on are the personal journey of the entrepreneur, like why are they doing this? And if it ever comes up that it's more money than passion, I walk away. Um, because I always talk about how there's going to be that 5 a.m. flight and you're going to bed at three. And at some point, if it becomes too onerous, someone will say, you know what, I can make money elsewhere. I'm giving up on this. But with someone who's there by a very passion-driven orientation, they'll get up for that flight and they'll make it happen. Um, and the other is the partners you've chosen. How long have you known them? How did you come together? And if there's no history of having worked together in some capacity or known each other for a while, this is where problems arise. Wow. I mean, I'd love to dig more into it. We're actually doing a, we do like monthly community forums and we're doing a forum on Thursday about um, what are some of the funding challenges that, that you've experienced as kind of a social impact entrepreneur. And I think it's tough for women out there raising funding. It really is. And I think one of the biggest things that's coming up in our community is just like what is your definition of success like mm. is it like millions of pounds is it like do you want to be a life or do you want to do something for five years and leave like do you want to just um have a sustainable business like get close to that and it's definitely something that i fell into with you with me i just thought well i'm an entrepreneur which basically just is a French term for business person, but I've given myself that name. And I'm running a startup, which basically just means I've come up with an idea. I don't really know if it's going to go anywhere. 
and that means I need to go and raise funding. Like that's the basis that I was, I didn't, no one said sit down and say like, what's your definition of success? Like what is happy for you? Like go and speak to somebody who's raised that much money and ask them what's the shittest part of their life right now. Like don't ask, don't look at their car and their house and be like, ask them what it's really like. And I don't think people do that due diligence at all. I mean, I love your, I don't know if you agree with me or not, but um, oh, yeah. like, be careful what you wish for sometimes, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And that was one of the questions I was going to ask about you. Um, what milestones would you like to hit where you would feel that uh, Warrior Women Network is a success? Not for anybody else, but for Carla. I think I, for me, a milestone is, I would like to see this scaling in a very, very, different way which is i think i'm fascinated by the term impact like i'm fascinated by a vision which i'm holding which is i'm seeing what a hundred women can do for each other what would a million women around the world pioneering new ways to solve you know to improve the lives of others environmental problems what would a million women connected in a vulnerable open way be able to achieve together and what kind of power on mass would that deliver that I'm really fascinated by that and I'm curious about it and I hold, I'm holding that vision without knowing if I'm going to achieve it without knowing how I'm going to achieve it I'm also really fascinated by a vision of like and I'm saying this because I want to be, I want to speak in a big way for other women to hear it. And I don't think it should be seen as egotistical. I'm fascinated by what I'm going to talk about when I walk out in front of an oversized audience. Mm. Like I'm fascinated, like what will have taken me there. And I hope it's about creating a space for other people to, to speak authentically. And I think that's really transformational and it's vulnerability plus impact like that's where I think the interesting equation is like more people being vulnerable, working together to drive more impact. That I think that's where we can open up a lever that we haven't done for change yet. So um, it's not a financial goal, although I, I hold the vision as well of, I would like to be able to create some financial security for my children, but I'm holding that vision within the reality that I don't know if those kind of things are realistic given the climate crisis that we're facing. So um, I'm trying to erode, I'm still challenged like many people are by old ideas of success. You know, like I sometimes still struggle with the idea of a pension and then I go, well, hang on a second, their long-term goals within a, in a life, life, life where we're not living in that space anymore. So I'm challenged by those old ideas of success in some ways. And I think it's just about reaching like your you know your potential in a way that like helps others to reach theirs is where i'll get the greatest satisfaction like, for me i get my greatest joy from helping other people to succeed like so the more people i succeed the more value i'm going to get from my life yeah. it's not really about me it's it's a catalyst for, for that that's brilliant i love that uh, i was also going to ask carla who is an ideal candidate to join the warrior women network but i think you've answered that and i'm going to take a stab at it and you can correct me um a woman who's willing to be vulnerable in a community and is yeah. also driven by impact yeah have I captured have i captured yeah. okay yeah 
I mean, for me, like the ultimate warrior is is AOC. Like, um, <laughs> nice. uh, she is um, an incredible example of what she says, like ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And I think we've got to a time now where we need ordinary people to do extraordinary things. It's not just about the people who had the right education and, and you know, going back to your story about your, your touching story about your, your son, I love the saying that like, what if the cure to cancer exists in the head of someone who never went to university? Mm. I think like Newbury can be that connector because in the same way that I'm saying we don't fit on paper in tick boxes, someone needs to be that bridge to bring all that knowledge and expertise into organizations who have the power and influence and finance to solve, you know, global. Someone has to be that, that link in. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's definitely like, you know, AOC is a really good example of someone coming from, you know, a waitress and creating a movement and like speaking with power all the time. Um, and yeah, I think she's probably the ultimate, the ultimate warrior woman. No, it's great. I love that uh, that you've said that. And, uh, you know, being a fellow parent, uh, you know, in, in trying to cultivate those uh, ideals in our children, it's also so important to to know who they are and, and how they're they're different and, and you have to kind of raise them in ways that will play to their strengths. Uh, my two children are very divergent in terms of um, what uh, motivates them, what moves them, but I think they can both accomplish amazing things, just it has to be in their own way. If I try and force one in one direction that's not natural to them, it won't, won't turn out well. Well, I mean, what an incredible thing. For, I mean, I wish that my own parents had taken that view, like, just to reflect, to reflect that back on you, like, to say that as a parent. There's a great TED talk about how um, in America there's a real bias because, of course, everyone want, lots of people want their children to go to Ivy League universities. There's a real bias between seeing a talent in a child at a young age and then being like, right, you're talented, you have to work at that opposed to just like saying wow that's really great that you're interested in that and like not trying to make it into something or make it an achievement and I think we're in a new time of parenting which is just like nurturing that in our children like seeing what they're interested in but like that's so much of that is idealistic as well like parenting is so challenging like it's beyond challenging and I think for you know, the other thing about the vision for me is I have a highly sensitive daughter, my eldest one, you know, empathic, all the stuff that mm. comes from that, which again, as a young child, I was kind of taught not to, not to uh, value and, and to squish. And so I guess part of this journey is like her show, showing her that there is power in that um, and in that sensitivity. So but we all, just like you were saying with your parents and how you were, brought up to think about you know different cultures i think we all learn that lesson of what was wrong before and try and change that lesson you know for, for the children. at least we try if we don't that's when real issues come isn't it absolutely no 100 percent um carla you've been so generous with your time we're at the top of the hour so i wanted to be thoughtful um and not spill over but i could see this conversation could easily go on for hours um i'm really thrilled to have uh, interacted with you to have met you thank you so much for sharing your ideas your life journey on the show and uh, there's a lot of different threads i'd love to pick up on and continue a conversation 
Thank you so much. I've really, really enjoyed it. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.